Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a horror anthology podcast by Superversive Radio, with no affiliation with any detective agency, person real or imagined, or the dark forces of Terre. It is not intended for children. This is Jim Donovan. It's October now. Time goes by too fast. I wonder if that's an Terre plot. Thankfully, we haven't found entropy demons. Yet. Anyway, I'm calling in after my vacation to the Oregon coast. <laughs> vacation. All I wanted was a little time off. The laying on she case reminded me of some things I had hoped to forget. So I checked out from the private detective life and joined a whale watching expedition off the Oregon coast. Three days later, I found myself on a dock off Euquina Head Bay, listening to a bubbly 20-something, soon-to-be marine biologist named Sarah, explain the various safety procedures before the whale watching could begin. There are two other people joining me on the whale watching expedition a retiree couple, Jeff and Ann Weaver, and the good Captain Terry. The weather was cloudy, which is not unusual for the Oregon coast, but it was kind of warm, which is unusual for the Oregon coast, especially around October. The captain called it balmy. It was still in the 60s, but for the Oregon coast, that's pretty warm. The air barely moved above the water, and there were no companion boats comfortably in sight. The clouds had become absorbed in one another, so we could sometimes see the shape of something reaching down or up. The idea of cloud watching felt alien. The green-blue ocean, wine dark, as Homer would say, before they invented the word indigo, in places nearly met the sky in an unmarked seam, so that if I didn't have the enhanced sight offered by the Virambicio, okay, not that much enhanced, just enough to tell the suit of a card from a hundred feet away in a smoky casino, or the glint of a gun or cursed object in someone's coat. I would think that the world was in a bowl upside down, and that Captain Terry might sail us off the edge of the world and onto the table of whatever monsters managed the Feast of Worlds. Despite Sarah's enthusiasm, no whales graced our expedition. So Captain Terry brought us close to Seal Rock, a natural rock formation along the coast where hundreds of seals and sea lions sunned themselves. We crowded the port side railing to look over at the seals just lying there. They weren't even juggling or anything. Saturday morning cartoons lied to me. Suddenly, the boat jolted hard, as though we had run aground of a rock or reef. We would have lost our balance on the deck if it hadn't been for the rails. Then, the grind of aluminum and stone began again, the ship bucking like a bronco. The boat lurched a third time, sending us off our feet, railing be damned, and Sarah lost her footing, slipping overboard. She let out a very short scream right before she hit the water. I rushed over to the emergency life vests and threw one after her, putting one on myself. I yelled at Jeff and Anne to do the same, waving them over to me. The boat shook again, but this time not as violently. The work had been done. The surface of the vessel slanted, starboard up, as it very clearly began to take on water. I heard Sarah resurface, thrashing about in the water, I got to the sounds just in time to watch her be pulled under the water. I've seen Jaws. 
I was not looking forward to the possibility of getting eaten by a shark. Well, shark or mermaid, deep one, kraken. Okay, well, bad odds for a shark, I guess. Serves me right for trying to take a vacation. The boat was more than halfway sunk. Jeff and Anne were just standing by the railing, looking at the spot where Sarah had disappeared. I yelled at them to snap them out of their decision paralysis and told them to put on life jackets, shoving a pair into their hands. I had heard nothing from Captain Terry, so I went into the cabin to see if I could find him. He was sprawled on the floor, having fallen out of his chair. I could feel a pulse, but that bruise on his forehead wasn't going to be pretty. I struggled a life vest onto him. That complete, I quickly scanned the room to find anything that I might use as a weapon. The captain had a diving knife in a drawer, and a shotgun above the cabin door. I pocketed the knife, and checked to see if the shotgun was loaded. It was, but the water was seeping into the cabin too quickly for me to find any extra shells. I knew it would be difficult to safely juggle the captain and the gun, so I yelled at Jeff to help me with him. He helped me by getting an arm under one of the captain's shoulders, while we dragged him out of the cabin and onto the deck of the sinking ship. Afterwards, Jeff rushed over to comfort his nearly hysterical wife. Almost all the deck was submerged by the time we got outside. With the captain safely outside, or as safe as an unconscious man on a sinking ship in dangerous waters could be, I shouldered the shotgun and began scanning the waters for fins, legs, or tentacles, or to see if the tour guide resurfaced. Nothing. Not even a flicker of a fin. I leaned over the edge of the rapidly sinking rail and heard a wet flopping sound coming from the bow of the ship. I slowly crept forward, the gun at my shoulder, my hands wet from dragging the captain along a sea-soaked deck, my knees trembling slightly from the surge of adrenaline. I clambered up the port side of the ship, at this time the tallest point. When I reached the bow, I could not find the source of the sound. Looking back on it, it sounded like taking a waterlogged shirt and slapping against the concrete of a swimming pool. I know that sound intimately. I didn't take my shirt off to swim until I was 24. Private detectives are not known for their beach bodies, and I do not tan, I burn. Suddenly, I felt something sharp dig into my back, right above the left kidney. The smell took me then. Rotten fish and decay, musty and wet. A soft voice croaked behind me, and a few feet below my ear. Drop. Gun. I slowly took my right hand off the trigger and held the shotgun by the barrel with my left hand. I lowered it gradually to the sea-soaked deck. The sharp object in my back followed me down. If you haven't been threatened by a thug because you're getting too close, or run afoul of a sushi chef, you'll never understand the idea that this gentleman knew how to gut a fish. It croaked again. On nose and mouth. Air breather. I didn't understand how air breather was an insult. Most of my friends are air breathers. From my right side, around the hip area, my shadow thrust a large seashell at me. The hand grasping the shell was certainly not human. It was so pale and green, like the underside of a frog. I didn't know if it had ever seen sunlight. The fingers were webbed loosely together. I held the shell up to inspect it, and the sharp thing prodded my back again. Fast. The voice sounded like a garbage disposal grinding away at full blast. The burps made it extra, um, guttural, in the sense that I now knew what he had been eating. 
Okay, pal, okay, I said. I put the shell over my nose and mouth, feeling somewhat stupid, since there were no strings to bind to my head. I needn't have worried. Pseudopods shot out of the shell and filled my nostrils, pushing their way up and into my sinus cavities and down into my lungs. It felt like I was on the wrong side of one of those Japanese cartoons. I screamed in pain. I tried to rip the shell off my head, but as I did, two other pseudopods wrapped around my head and held the shell in place. A sticky, wet substance filled my mouth and sealed it shut. I found myself unable to open or to even pass air through my mouth. The pain stopped almost as soon as it started, but as I tried and failed to breathe through my mouth, I found myself starting to black out from lack of oxygen. Frog hand kicked me in the back of my legs, and I pitched forward onto my knees. In another moment, I slipped on the slick surface of the deck and fell onto my face. I struggled to breathe, the burning in my lungs eclipsing all other sensations. Blackness crimped my vision, and my fingers buzzed. I felt myself get dragged by something, and I fell over the edge of the deck. As soon as I hit the frigid fall waters of the Pacific Ocean, I drew in a deep breath from my nose. Through the tentacles coming out of the shell, fresh oxygen flooded my lungs. I gulped deep, and the burning immediately ceased. Somehow, the shell was converting water into oxygen. I didn't have time to marvel, though, because even though I knew I wasn't at risk of drowning, I still couldn't see where I was in the murky depths of the Pacific Ocean. Plus, it was still exceedingly cold. The same hand that shoved me over the edge roughly rubbed something wet and slimy over my eyes. I blinked several times, and suddenly, the stinging cold of the salt water didn't sting so much anymore. And I could see quite a bit farther, but in shades of gray and white. We were, after all, still underwater, and it was still dark. And for the first time, I saw my abductor. His undercarriage was paler than any albino I had ever seen, partially transparent. I could see the faint outlines of the veins under his skin. Gray, almost light blue. His face was distinctly fishy, reminiscent of a piranha, puckered to the middle, with a mouth gaping slightly open. He had rows of sharp teeth, and seemed to breathe through gills along his neck, as they flared and sucked. He had fins instead of ears, and a long dorsal fin along his back. His feet were also webbed, like his hands. His muscles stuck out like a corded rope. He tightly and menacingly held a sharp, shiny black knife. Probably the same thing he used to threaten me on the ship. The shape reminded me of ancient Native American artifacts and Aztec blades. He began to speak like he had on the surface. His voice was distorted by the water. But even still, I heard him gurgle out, No escape. We kill them all. Slowly. I looked around me and saw the other passengers from the boat, also submerged under the water, alongside other fish people. I saw my fish person had a set of golden armbands around his offhand. Their captors were wrapping large rocks attached to seaweed to their bodies, and so we sank. The captain of the boat was also under the water with us, but he wasn't wearing a shell, and there were no fishmen attending him. I began to swim towards him, but the fish face guarded me, swam in front, blocking my path. No, the sea claimed him. She takes her tithe. 
Captain Terry's body drifted away from us, tossed about by the invisible waves and tide, until he was no longer in sight. The fishman who'd been attending me slapped some tangled seaweed over my hands while I was floating, watching the captain drift away. I couldn't free my hands from the tangle, and he used the clump to drag me with him as he swam deeper and deeper into the ocean. He put swordfish to shame. He was fast. Faster than a creature his size should have been able to be. He gyrated his body from his surprisingly agile hips and cut through the water like a dolphin. I don't know how far we traveled, because even though I could now see underwater, there wasn't much to see. But we had definitely been going for at least, I don't know, an hour? I hope this Asian seafood delight on my face prevented the bins. Since he was traveling so fast and dragging my body behind him, my arms were stretched out in front of me, so every harsh tug threatened to pull my shoulders out of their sockets. I looked for any way of escape. I glanced around me. My fellow captives seemed to suffer similar harsh treatment. Sarah, the tour guide, seemed to be suffering piteously at the treatment, while the older couple were being dragged along with a little more care. That's not a good sign. Eventually, the barren ocean began to change. Though everything was still dark and shrouded in shadows, we gradually came upon some giant underwater edifice, a structure deep in the ocean, unaffected by waves, but contorted and twisted. One couldn't stare at it too long, because it seemed to always move, like the ocean itself. Its form moving along the ocean floor like a tongue of fire dancing across a log. A trick of the light, maybe. While I suspected it was made from some sort of rock from a distance, as we got closer, I saw that it was some sort of living mass of coral. While I knew we wouldn't stay around long enough to witness it, a part of me wanted to know if this structure grew over the years. The palatial building was decorated with many statues, but instead of being shaped like our hideous fishermen captors, they were more elegant testimonies of a beautiful race of mermaids? Yes, they were definitely statues of creatures with more distinct divisions between fish and man features. Some in heroic poses, holding what were surely obsidian swords. One had a merman riding in a sort of chariot, pulled by dolphins. One had a merwoman, wielding a trident, and riding over the waves which were destroying a distinctly human city. All of the statues were black, shiny obsidian. But others, possibly of basalt, depicted grotesque horrors and abominations. There were humans. We were never displayed in a positive light, and always appearing subservient to either one of the merfolk or a fishman. I even saw a pregnant human woman standing among tiny fishfolk. Whatever awaited us, we were sure to hate it. As I gazed at the art, I noticed that all around me, a soft blue fluorescent glow seemed to effuse everything. Algae lit the structure and provided me with the first new color I had seen in over an hour. We were deposited in a large empty floor. There were no walls between us in the nearest buildings, and there was no need for a roof or ceiling to block the sun or rain. We were surrounded by statues on all sides, many depicting grotesque horrors befalling humans. And in the center of this large area was a tower that dwarfed the others, 70 feet tall if it were an inch. It was of a mermaid whose features were beautiful, even by human standards, and whose bottom half was a perfectly proportioned shark body, less streamlined, all power, 
The statue's woman half rose above the ocean floor, held aloft by a series of columns supporting her lower ribcage. The tail portion stretched behind her, with her tail fins arcing over her back to rest on her shoulders. Her face was cruel and hard, set in a sneer. The fluorescent algae grew thick around here, but it wasn't just the normal blue-green. Red was the predominant color in this temple, blood-red. The fishmen escorting us took our buoyancy rocks and looped them through some hooks that had been lying, embedded in the coral floor. We couldn't move the rocks if we tried. I looked at my fellow captives. They seemed to be doing all right, but since none of us could talk to each other, it was hard to see if anyone was injured. We floated close to each other for comfort. The proximity of another human helping calm some of our nerves. I had no doubt we were not the first human prisoners, but one thing set us apart. Because of my brother, I can see into the Verum Visio and pull the strands of space to bend reality to my whim. Okay, that sounded a little grandiose, but given enough time, I can see the connections that bind the universe together and affect things just a little bit. I couldn't launch any grand fireballs under the ocean, and an earthquake might just get us all killed. Or it could just shake up some fisherman's cocktail. I wish I could cause earthquakes. But I chose to relax my eyesight just a little bit so that I could see the strings that hold reality in place to see if true sight could give me some insight to affecting our rescue. I relaxed my eyes. Not too much, because unlike that time with the ghost at Griffith Park, I wasn't trying to see the past. With just enough effort, I could see things as they really were, beyond the three dimensions that average people are stuck within. There were grotesque horrors in this place. Demons and other invisible forces of ultra terror made this place their home. They lounged in the hidden bone pits or loomed over the statues. Their eyes, or similar enough, blazed with hatred and the joy of cruelty. I did not look at any of them directly. They were already watching us, but the forces of Otraterra can tell when you can see them. And that never ends well. I felt the vibrations of nearby wildlife. A pod of orcas a few miles away, hunting for food. In any other setting, Sarah would surely have been excited to know we were so close to whales in their natural environment. When I'm open to the Verum Visio, everything else is a haze. But I could see and hear what was going on around me. If a little muted. So then, I watched as scores of fishmen began filling the area, hovering all around the square, treading water. Two fishmen, ornately covered in breastplates of coral and headdresses of carved ivory, roughly dragged Jeff and his wife Anne into the center of the temple, right in front of the mermaid statue. They let the buoyancy rocks drop to the coral floor, unsecured. The two fishermen ceremoniously freed Jeff and his wife's hands and swam to the side. Jeff and Anne struggled to pull their rocks, but we had traveled far and they were tired. They couldn't swim away from their rocks or free themselves. As they watched the humans struggle against the rocks weighing them down, the fishermen let out a bubbling, gasping noise that I interpreted to be laughter. Suddenly, the red light intensified. The fishermen stopped laughing. Jeff and his wife stopped struggling for a second and looked around. One lone fisherman stepped up from beside the statue. He was the only fully dressed fisherman I had seen, but he walked stiffly, 
because he was covered head to toe in ivory. I mentally marked him out as a king or high priest. He opened his mouth, and we heard a low hum through the water. It picked up in intensity, while the frequency bottomed out. What started out so soft one could barely hear it, quickly became so loud as to rival airplanes taking off. I could feel his odd song vibrating in my chest. The fishermen began chanting over and over again, repeating the same word, Daganu. Hundreds of weird, burbling voices chanting the same three syllables. In the curious, detached feeling of the Verum Visio, I understood. They were Dagon worshippers. Dagon was a Mesopotamian fertility god. He's often seen as half man, half fish. Even Lovecraft, who had been permanently scarred by the dreams, <laughs> and worse, of Otraterr, recorded that manfish abominations worship this deity. I was not sure what the connection is between Mesopotamia and the Oregon coast, or how Middle Eastern fish god came here. But what I did know was that these abominations were about to sacrifice us in some pagan ritual. I know people back in LA who would pay good money for this kind of vacation experience with natives. The acoustics of the temple and the amplifying effect of water focused the chants and the hum directly in front of the statue, directly onto Jeff and his wife. They writhed in agony as the sound waves swept over them. Thin streams of blood poured out of their ears as their eardrums burst. The low-frequency sounds reminded me of whale songs. Whale songs! There was hope. I could see lines of power pour out of the fishman's mouth like the strings of a harp. During the whaling trip, Sarah the tour guide spouted all manner of whale facts, including their favorite food and hunting strategies. I don't speak whale, but in the visio, I can contort the threads of sound that reach out and infuse them with my will. It wouldn't do much, but those orcas were hungry after all. Once the sound reached them, as the bubbly screams of the fishmen reached its fevered pitch, I could reach out and pluck the strings of the high priest's song. I played around until I found the lines that connected us to the orcas. I taunted them with promises of a giant school of herring. I played with their innate love of the hunt. I made them feel as though they were starving, so that the lure was harder for them to ignore. And I felt them, all twenty of the roughly five-ton adult killer whales, coming in fast. But they would come too late. Jeff and his wife had stopped thrashing. They were no longer moving. The ultrasound bassy song had stopped their hearts. I could no longer see their threads of life in the Verambicio. I had failed them. Sarah still lived, and I had to prepare to escape. The high priest's body began to contort. I watched as his legs fused together. I felt as his bones cracked a thousand times over. I heard him scream as his entire form was being reconstructed. Slowly but surely, where once stood some VIP of the fishmen, now swam a perfectly formed merman. Strong, fully masculine upper torso, and lithe, utterly piscine tail. The other fishmen genuflected before him, and he shouted out a command. Another of the fishfolk, this time a woman, also fully clothed in ivory, stepped from behind the giant statue of Dagon. Or, since this was the statue of a woman, Dagon's consort, 
Hydra. The two coral-clad fish priests dragged Sarah and me into position. I lost control of the Verambicio. I knew help was coming. I just had to hold on. I could not tell how close the whales were now. We were put into position. Sarah tried to swim away, but couldn't do more than thrash around. I didn't bother. I knew I needed to save my strength. The chanting started again. The low-frequency hum started up again. Oh, it hurt. It felt like a hand was closing over my entire body. It was trying to wring me out like a towel. The water pressure that the shell was protecting me from redoubled. My diaphragm vibrated in resonance with the rising tones. I could feel the buildup in my eardrums as the intensity increased to the breaking point and then stopped like a power outage during an Evanescence concert. In the sudden silence, I heard and felt a whale song, and then another, and another. They had come in as though they were hunting a school of herring. All twenty of them surrounded the temple area and began blasting air bubbles from their blowholes. I watched as the leader swooped in and bit the merman male's torso clean in half. All that was left was his fishtail flopping in the sea, his blue blood leaking into the sea around him. The fishmen shrieked in fear and anger, swimming up to meet the bold, beautiful whales. This was our chance. They had forgotten us. I took the diver's knife out of my pocket. I hacked away at my seaweed tether, and then at Sarah's. She hadn't gone completely to panic, and soon the two of us were free. I chuckled when I saw an orca whip his tail, stunning several fishmen. I watched as his brother swam up behind them, opened its toothy maw, and tear them to shreds. I grabbed Sarah's hand, and together we swam away from the chaos. As we surfaced, exhausted, I saw the jutting mountain peaks of the Oregon coast. We weren't that far offshore. When we finally reached solid ground, I used my diving knife to pry the masks off of us, and used just a little bit of magic to coax the pseudopods out of our nose. I was not thinking straight, and tossed the shells back into the ocean. I stared after them and I slapped my face. I could have kept them as a memento, as on-demand scuba gear. Susan left without much of a word. I did give her the number of a good psychologist, one who was in the know. Bigger groups than us will take care of those pesky traumatic memories. Sitting on the beach, I considered what Jack or Sean would do. Jack would definitely go for sushi. I'm going to need a moment. But vengeance would be mine. Control, I recommend contacting the Department of American Zoological Extraordinaries and asking them to send some specialized underwater units to scout out that location and depth charge that thing straight to hell. I know Teddy Roosevelt left us some protocols about how to deal with any of the Deep One species. I'll drop my case notes off at the Wilshire dump site when I get back into Los Angeles. For now, though, I'm going to sit in my hotel and just rest. No fishmen in the tub, toilet, or ice machine, let me tell you. I'll keep an eye on the pool, though. Until next time, this is Jim Donovan, signing off. Pinkerton's Ghosts is a podcast distributed by Superversive Radio, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international license. This episode was written and performed by Ken Dickison. Ken Dickinson performs our audio editing. 
Ben Wheeler edits the drafts, directs, produces, and herds cats. Visit us on Facebook, read articles on superversivesf.com, and wherever podcasts are distributed, you'll find us. Contact us through Twitter at Pinkerton's Ghosts, or send an email at pinkertonsghosts at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.